Wintertime is the perfect time to plan for the garden. Have you ever stopped to think about what plants would be best for creating winter interest in the garden? Now, some of these plants would provide beautiful winter interest through maybe their exfoliating bark, offer unique foliage, and also possess interesting berries, fruits, and even cones that would make it look so, so pretty, especially with all that snow on there. Well, in this episode, I am chatting up with Dr. Wynn Dunwell, University of Kentucky Extension Horticulture Specialist, whose area of specialization is in nursery and landscape. In our chat, he recommends several winter-hardy plants that would make ideal candidates for providing winter interest in Kentucky's home garden and landscape. So to listen to the full episode, stay with me right here on the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. Now, before we get into today's content, I want to read two reviews that I received recently through Apple Podcast. Daddy and Two Daughters writes about the Sunshine Gardening podcast that it's simple, practical, and easy to understand. I love having someone who talks normal to tell me how to do this stuff. And he also leaves a little smiley face there too. I certainly love that you enjoy that it's easy to understand. That's whole about my mission there. And JK, Kentucky 502 writes, so helpful in the subject line. I listen to other gardening podcasts and I'm so glad we have this local show to hear info pertinent to our area. I would love to hear about native trees and perennials as we are trying to add those to our back lot. So certainly I will make that a priority to bring to you in the future. And I want to thank both of you all for taking the time to leave me a review. And if you enjoy listening to the Sunshine Gardening Podcast, I would love it if you would take a quick minute of your time to leave a review. Now, leaving a review is super simple. Just pop open that purple app on your phone, share your biggest takeaway from an episode or what you would like to hear featured in the future. As always, thank you for listening and leaving a review about the podcast. Now let's get into today's content. Welcome to the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. This gardening show will equip and inspire avid gardeners with weekly tips and tricks to help them navigate the gardening world. The show will also highlight specific growing requirements for several plants so the sun will shine brighter over their Kentucky garden. And now, here is that ray of sunshine, garden enthusiast and horticulture extension agent, Kristen Hildebrand, with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. I know right now it's winter time and a lot of people, as far as gardeners go, even home residents, are looking more at their landscape. And I'm really excited about our topic today. But first off, I'd like for you to kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe about your position with the university or even some of the experiences that you have had in recent years or previous years. Well, I guess I'll start at the beginning, sort of. I grew up in a little town called East Quag, New York, which is actually in the Hamptons area of Long Island. And how I got into horticulture was my whole community was horticulture. The summer residents took the uh, our year-round population from 320 to several thousand. 
people who rented homes and stayed on the beach at tourist houses and that sort of thing. So therefore, in this little town, this little teensy town of 320 people, we had five landscape nurseries and numerous truck farms to sell produce to those people when they came in the summertime. So there was always work for young people. I mean, I, I did everything. I delivered newspapers. Uh, don't really want to admit it, but I actually picked up garbage for a while. And I worked evenings collecting eggs at a chicken farm and Seasonally, we got out of school in October to work at the potato plant farms. So that was always a given. You would get paid to not go to school. We liked that. And on weekends, there was moving and covered boats, pumping gas. I mean, everything you can think of. But in the springtime and in the summer, I worked almost exclusively for those landscape nurseries. And I learned a lot because this is very high-end landscaping with German gardeners and all kinds of things like that. So it, it was pretty exciting as you developed your skill set. I'm good at this. I can do this. After you messed it up a few dozen times, like digging plants, we dug all of our jobs in the morning. So the sandy soils, it was very uh, difficult work. And then I left there at a very young age because we went to school very young. And I went to a small college to get a degree in nursery management. While there, I worked as an assistant manager, evening manager at a garden center. A little Vietnam issue came along, changed all my plans. I ended up in the Air Force and had the good fortune to work 24-hour shifts. So in Casper, Wyoming, I was able to take over as the landscape manager for a family company that worked mostly with residential clientele, corporate owners of mountain retreats. A big one for us was Listerine in the Bighorn Mountains. And then we had a contract with Jackson Lake Lodge and Golf Course. So a lot of travel, but a lot of fun. I mean, I was young. I could do whatever I want. I go skiing, you know, do all these things. And yet in Wyoming, I lost that palette of plants that I knew because all we wanted was something that survived the brutal winters and the clay poor soils. I used my GI Bill to finish my bachelor's at the University of Wyoming, went to the University of Idaho, where I got a PhD in plant physiology, cold stress physiology. And then there was a lot of jobs available in the Southeast when I graduated in the late 70s. I guess people my father's age retiring from universities. And the furthest north was Kentucky. <laughs> so I took Kentucky <laughs> because everywhere south, when I go for an interview, I, the heat was beyond, even in May, the heat was more than... So I came to Kentucky thinking it would be a stepping stone to return home to the Northeast or go back out West. And as I started in Lexington, I traveled to all the natural wonders of that area in Appalachia, Boone Forest, and everywhere. Hazard. I mean, I went everywhere I could, Cumberland Gap, and wandered all over the woods, decided, holy smokes, this is a pretty cool place. All these plants, I don't even know most of them. I just know a few. And then there was a position open in West Kentucky. They asked me if I'd like to go there. I said, how many people? And remember, 320. My, they said, oh, there's about three or 4,000 people in the whole county. I said, I'll go. 
because I always liked living in little towns. Casper, Wyoming was 30,000. Idaho, Laramie was around 20,000. I'd always lived in small communities. So I came down here and immediately, in spite of going for job interviews and getting offers, I'd say, no, I think not. I'll go to LBL and take a walk in the woods today. And over time, I learned a palette of plants in our native in Kentucky is absolutely amazing. And I've had the good fortune to work with a lot of botanic gardens from all over the world that have sent people here to collect seed from our native plants. And so now I know the the owner of in Angers, France, and in Germany and the Netherlands, and I don't keep up with all these people, but I've met them wandered around in the woods here in Western Kentucky, including Chicago Botanic Garden. I know those people. And it's just been delightful, a delightful career working at the University of Kentucky, working with the nursery industry and growing trees and shrubs. And at the same token, having this little fun times, wandering around looking at native plants in Kentucky. So that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Well, I don't think I really realized that you started in New York. So I learned some things just in that uh, little introduction that you gave us. And it's interesting how our path, our timeline has opened up opportunities and connected you with some other people. And I know you've done a lot of research, probably more than I even know about, about the native plants, especially here in Kentucky as well. So we'll go ahead, Dr. Dunwell, and get started with our discussion today. Why we've asked you to come on the podcast is simply right now, gardeners are spending more time around their homes. And it's kind of that waiting period where before the spring is like actually go time. But they're kind of looking at some of their windows and maybe imagining some things that would be really good, especially for creating winter interest around their home. So I was hoping that you could explain how gardeners and maybe even residents can do that by using different plants in their landscape. Sure. Well, just real quick introduction. There are many plants that have winter features that are good for us, our overall aesthetic of our landscape. And then there's lots of plants that we should consider because they're good for the birds, other creatures in our environment, and they make a significant contribution. For example, Doug Tallamy from Pennsylvania recommends that we design our garden so we don't have to put seed in the feeder that the birds have leftover seed pods and all these kinds of things and different types of fruit on our trees and shrubs and then do not have to do the feeding because our landscape provides it and including in the summertime having plants that are eaten by worms so that the birds can eat the worms. I'm not sure about that one but anyway a biggie for almost worldwide is the hollies and they have the red fruit. They're male and female separate, so you always kind of have to have either a native population in your area or neighbors who have males somewhere. There has to be a male in order for you to get the red fruit. But we have the normal, what everybody thinks of as the holly, American holly, and all the many, many cultivars that occurred in our area. And primarily here in Kentucky, American holly cultivars were selected 
by so many different nurserymen solely on their ability to produce fruit. And they cut the limbs for making grave blankets. So now we have all these cemeteries in West Kentucky anyway, and I know on Long Island also, that have volunteer hollies in their landscapes of cemeteries because of that laying of those fruity blank grave blankets over the graves as ornamentation at the Christmas time. We don't do that any longer because it was a labor-intensive activity to do it and to make them. But as a kid, I made uh, grave blankets out of chicken wire and cut stems from American hollies out of the nursery. Uh, we And it's very attractive for adding with juniper branches or pine branches and making stuff for the interior of our house, decorations for the interior of our house, and also just leaving it outdoors. Like right now, they're all, most of them still have their fruit. And sometime in the next month or two, cedar wax wings will come in here and they'll be gone, just stripped. It also, one of the more attractive birds that we have, winter birds that we have, also enjoys eating them. I also would like to mention that uh, many people think of the, uh, like Foster's holly, I think is kind of the generic term for it, a small leaf holly that also is heavily fruited. And there's many different cultivars. There's orange colors, yellow colors, white, uh, red colors in that group of plants that they might use for a different feature. Then there's the deciduous hollies and winter red is beyond a shadow of a doubt absolutely one of the most striking in spite of the fact that we've introduced hundreds of cultivars of Ilex verticillata since that one was developed in Vincennes, Indiana by Bob Simpson. So, or selected from Bob Simpson's nursery. But winter red Ilex verticillata is a fabulous plant. And there's many other deciduous hollies that have fruit that we might select for both their attractiveness and for having the fruit stand out on the stems, bare stems. Another plant that does that is the aronias. Aronia is a native plant to Kentucky. Arbutifolia, Aronia arbutifolia is red chokeberry. And I've heard a lot of people talking about Aronia as a fruit, as something you eat. And it's called chokeberry for a reason. I have raised the fruit bearing ones and find that there's no way to cover it up. Even making jellies with a ton of sugar and pectin, they still choke me, or at least I still taste that choke flavor of trying to eat the fruit. But they do in Europe, they do eat it. But it is an outstandingly attractive shrub that could be used in the landscape. And the fruit is very shiny and striking once the leaves fall off. Then we move into plants that actually bloom in the winter. The witch hazels, Amalus virginiana, which is our native, there's a cultivar of that called sun glow, and it's very yellow and bright in the very late fall or early winter. It pretty much blooms in late November through December. Then if we use other cultivars of witch hazel, they bloom all the way from winter, like the late December, January, all the way into the spring. And the last one, oh, <laughs> I knew it. Uh, I've lost it. I got part of the name is Anthony. But but anyway, there is a yellow one that blooms very, very late in the season that you can 
typically buy because they like it being in bloom at the time of the opening of the garden centers. And I'll come up with that. You can post it to your notes of your podcast. But another interesting plant is Pinostensa flora oculus draconis, called dragon's eye Japanese red pine. And it has bicolored leaves that are yellow and green. And it's striking anytime you walk past it. There's a beautiful example at the Baker Arboretum in uh, Bowling Green that's right there near the museum, in that right in front of the museum. And that's where I first was introduced to it many years ago when Jerry Baker and Mitch Leichhardt were developing their conifer collection there. And it's a very striking and attractive plant. If you're looking for that, Japanese black maple type architecture, whereas big heavy stems, more bonsai looking in spite of it being a large plant. So that's a good one. Another one that I've started using now, we have a lot of reblooming plants. Hydrangeas, a lot of people know of those. There's all the different series coming out from Monrovia and Baileys and Proven Winners that are supposed to bloom. If they don't bloom in the spring, they'll bloom in the fall or they'll bloom in the spring and the fall if you're lucky. But there's also the reblooming azaleas. Mostly they're part of what's called the Encore series, which Buddy Guy down in Louisiana has been the breeder of those plants. I have autumn royalty in my yard, and my yard has very dense shade where I can't even get the uh, rhododendrons to even put on a bud, much less bloom. But these reblooming azaleas, I've had good success with them, and they do rebloom fairly significantly. I'd say a 30 or 50% bloom over what they do in the springtime. And the colors are normally quite bright and striking, purples and pinks and, and different bright colors. And they stand out, even if you have set them quite a ways from your home, under a tree out in the backyard or something like that. They're very attractive. And that second bloom adds significantly. So we have lots of things that rebloom. So keep your eye out on those and learn some of the different ones that do it and whether you would like to have them or not. I just will mention one of the research projects we have is on growing fruit trees or fruit shrubs in containers for fruit production. And we're working with figs right now. And you say, well, figs, there's no way. They're always going to be frozen off in the spring. Yes, they are. But there's two cultivars, brown turkey and celeste, that bloom on new wood. So they would bloom in summer, and we would have a fall crop, as we did this year, straight out of from cuttings that we took. I will say this, finding figs right now is tough. <laughs> so some other plants you might consider, tulip tree, wonderful, large flowering shade tree. It has little seed brackets that the seeds fall out and you're left with like a little candelabra type type of structure that looks really nice in the wintertime. We wanted to talk about different bark types. Yes. My favorite is persimmon. It has little square blocks, maybe an inch, inch and a half blocks on its trunk as it starts to mature. And they're very dark colored. And on a rainy day, 
because the water's running down and they're very dark. It allows them to be an accentuation. So in the springtime, you might have plants, green plants growing under them, and that bark will make a very, very nice appearance to that area. You want to limb them up a little bit, give yourself a little space. And then, of course, you'll have the fruit for wildlife, for your own use, whatever, persimmon. I just love persimmon. Oh, persimmon is male and female, so you do have to have more than one of the same plant. Sycamores, London plane tree with their white exfoliating bark, they're an outstanding plant for winter. I know at one time, sometimes sycamores were the end of the green, so you'd be able to judge the golf course green where it was in the wintertime because of the white bark of the sycamore. So I have seen some golf courses do that. Stewardias, oh Lord, have mercy. I know it's an exotic, but the bark is outstanding. There are some hardy camellias that are winter blooming that people can grow, but you know, you're taking a risk, but maybe you're the type of person that enjoys doing that. Some of the zone sevens are starting to do okay with a little protection near the house or near a barn or something like that. So As we move along from the barks and go into different perennials, grasses, all these types of plants, I was wanted to be sure and mention, leave the seed heads up there on the tall grasses. Let them wave in the winter. And then also the birds get to eat the seeds and you're providing seeds and seed heads. And I say seed heads because our native jack-in-the-pulpit, green dragon, as well as the exotic Rhodia japonica, those plants have seed heads with lots of seeds on them. And they're great feed for the people, the little critters on the ground, doves and rabbits and those types of things. Of course, if you're like me, I got chicken wire trying to keep those rabbits out. But anyway, I do grow Rhodia japonica as a Theodore Klein plant award winner. And I just want to give you a heads up about it. It's very slow in my garden to establish. And then once it gets going, it has very attractive green foliage. It does have a bloom on a stalk, and it also has the stalks of the clusters of red fruit, much like ginseng, if you know that, or Jack in the Pulpit or Green Dragon. want to be sure to mention the hellebores. I love them all. We're now actually able to breed them into all different colors and provide you with that color. Years ago, I mean, recent history, we couldn't do that. So you would get mixtures. Like I would get what was called sunshine selections from Barry Glick in West Virginia. And who knows? You get a half dozen plants, you put them out there. One's purple, one's kind of green, one's kind of black. They're all different colors. Now that you can actually select the color that you would prefer to have in your landscape. And I will mention something quickly about hellebores. I like the stinking hellebore, which has the big high yellow blooms in the winter. But our flowering hellebores, you normally need to clean those old branches off as you come into winter, old leaves and fronds. And so you have fresh green leaves sticking up and the blooms come out above them. If you leave the old leaves, sometimes the blooms are really masked underneath the old foliage and it looks a little ratty to boot. The yuccas, if you have deer problems, deer will eat them at some point, but they come in variable foliage colors. 
One I have is called Color Guard, which has a yellow strip down the middle of the leaf, and it's very showy in the winter. It brightens things up a lot. Pachysandra procumbens, which I use in my shade garden as a ground cover, is in, coming into bloom right now. It's under the leaves, but it's very cool. I have grandkids, when they were little, take them out. Look at there. Oh, what is that? You know, and of course they take them, <laughs> but that's okay. Little kids can do those kind of things. Lycoris radiata. Many of you know Lycoris squamata, which is called the naked lady or the surprise lily. This is called red spider lily. Mine has bulbs and it covers the ground right now in the areas where it is with green, lush, beautiful foliage in the middle of the winter time. Now that will die away in the spring and after surprise lily comes up it'll come up as a red and my wife absolutely loves it as a cut flower in the house all the arborvitaes all the junipers all the different evergreens you can think of let's not forget snowdrops which are starting to bloom right now the little bulblet they're very cute and uh plant them in mass and then i didn't want to get I know we're running out of time, but rose hips, all the different roses, if you'll stop cutting on them and stop deadheading them in early September, they will flower, blooms will drop off, and you'll end up with a rose hip. Keep irrigating so they're healthy. Encourage pollinators in any way you can, and then you'll have the rose hips. Now, granted, some of the rugosas and some of the old coarse beach roses and others have massive hips. It just is one called chestnut rose that they're like a club. But even the knockouts and carefree and many of the others will have small rose hips that can be cut and put into cut stem table decorations and that sort of thing. And don't forget to walk in the woods. All the lily leaves are out right now. There's no lilies, there's no flowers, but there's all these little green leaves. Some are purple underneath, like the crane fly orchid. And so when you walk through the woods this time of year, keep your eyes open for these little single solitary leaves sticking up. That's going to be an orchid in the springtime. That's awesome. I don't think I'll have to take a winter stroll out after you've talked to us about all these plants. I do want to ask you one quick question, and we can end on this if you like or if there's anything else you'd like to add. But you named a bunch of those different plants from perennials to different trees and shrubs and even the bulbs like the snowdrops. So whenever we're thinking and considering these plants for creating winter interest, is there any place that we should start? For planning. And then the other thing I want to mention as far as planning the winter interest is, like you had mentioned, a lot of plants are hard to find this year. So some of those things might not be able to be found. If you have any uh-huh. other suggestions on where to look for those plants. Sure. Most of the time, I'm just like everybody else. I wander around neighborhoods and go to somebody's house and say, what's that? You know, Nandina is crazy good this year. I mean, crazy. But it's an exotic, so I don't really like to mention it too much. And it has gotten invasive in some areas. I haven't seen it here, but I've heard it is on the invasive lists of certain states. So I, I don't mention it. But another one is Mahonias. They're evergreen. They have striking yellow flowers in winter. And then they have this heavy fruit, purple fruit. So there's a 
a lot of different plants to choose from. And the easiest way I know, especially if you live in an area like you can go to Baker Arboretum or you can go to Bernheim or you can go to Udell or the UK Arboretum in Lexington or Boone County Arboretum or Cincinnati Zoo. There's so many different, wonderful, oh, Creek Cheekwood. Don't forget Cheekwood, Missouri Botanic Garden. Don't forget to go to all these places. And when you're there, Outside all these places are normally well-landscaped homes. And I'll see something like uh, Taylor is a very upright juniper. My daughter has them in her yard. They're small. I wanted to see a big one. I'm down at Cheekwood in Nashville. And there they are in the landscape outside of the garden. Gigantic. So look around. Take a walk in your neighborhood when you're doing your pandemics trapped in the house walks. Go walk in somebody else's yard. I mean, I don't mean that trespassing, but get in your car and maybe run over to another subdivision, see what kind of plants they're using and how they're using them and whether, hey, that's, uh, I don't know what that is. Just grab a picture of it or something and send it to the extension service, county officer somewhere, and we'll try to identify it for you. Now, some of the fruit bearing ones are bad. <laughs> uh, the olives and privet, once it's mature and flowers, produces an enormous amount of fruit. Well, we don't want birds eating that, delivering it all over our native areas. So there's lots of plants you can plan for, and depending on the size and shape and the aesthetic of it, that would depend on where you'd put it in your landscape, not necessarily the winter feature. I know a lot of people put small hollies like the blue hollies near their homes as foundation plantings and things, and that's very showy and very attractive, and they have the fruit. You do need a male, but they work very well around those kinds of sites, and you'll see them used extensively all over the state, including here in western Kentucky, including near where I live. I wander around some of the neighborhoods. But one of the things we need to keep in mind is how is it easiest to maintain some of these plants? We want to keep maintenance as minimal as possible. But at the same token, this always requires some sort of planning and some sort of maintenance. We can't put a big, gigantic holly next to the house. So it should be put out into the yard somewhere or as a corner feature, 15, 20 feet away from the house. So we have room for it. Same with some of the other plants people love, like magnolia, magnolia, southern magnolia with its leaves and all of the stuff it drops on the ground. Well, you need to put it someplace where that's not a problem, uh, where it's easy to clean up later or run over with the lawnmower or whatever, and it doesn't create a problem in traffic flow in areas around your home. So there's so many different ideas. And the one thing is that I've learned, I'm not necessarily a designer. I don't have that creative niche, but my wife and my daughter do. I mean, they have it. They see it. They see that big tree can go there and it works perfectly. Well, I'm just a plant guy. I just buy a plant and I take it home like you buy a book and I put it somewhere in the landscape and it doesn't work out. I have to move it or take it, get rid of it and get something else. So don't be afraid to do that because I think my landscapes over time have become quite acceptable to my family and friends and everyone else to come over and see some different plants and then also have a comfortable landscape for a barbecue or something. So I would tell everybody, don't ever be afraid to go ahead and, and do it yourself. 
and plan it yourself. And if you don't, when you get a landscape architect or a landscape designer, tell them exactly what you would like, what you have in your mind. I want to do this, or I want to do that, or I want a path, or I want to go for a walk in the woods from my house. How do I get from here to there? And they'll be able to help you out if you give them good direction. Matter of fact, they get more pleasure out of working with people who have some idea of what they want rather than doing a landscape for somebody. And then they say, you know, that's not what I wanted. So <laughs> we're overrunning our time pretty significantly. But well, uh, any- I really do appreciate all those pointers and the vast knowledge of the plants that you mentioned today on the podcast. One last final question. And I promise this is the last one. But if like somebody wanted to research some of these plants a little bit further, is there any good resources that they could go to to check out or read over a little bit more that would be helpful for them? Sure. First off, everything's online. The University of Kentucky years ago, Dr. Bob Geneve put together a massive group of plant sheets, uh, I think through the Arboretum. I love Missouri Botanic Garden. They have a plant finder program that always pops up. So I use edu's, which is .edu, .some of the orgs like Kentucky Nursery and Landscape Association, some of these other types of groups, Master Gardeners. A lot of these groups have materials on plants, but I still go back to the books. Right now I'm reading Doug Tallamy's Nature's Best Hope, which is about designing our gardens for the birds and the insects and the rodents and the, and all the bad creatures that you might have to protect a little bit from, rabbits and deer. Before we leave, I would like to mention one thing. If you want to really spruce up your landscape and you have trees with bark features, lighting the trunks of those trees when you have guests and when you're out in the yard really enhances the overall enjoyment of the yard and it gives you that opportunity to Go out in the yard and enjoy it a little more, the lighting. Of course, we want to look at the sky. and the, So you should have some way to turn it off and on rather than on a timer. But yeah, that, I think that's helpful. Anyway, Mike Durr's books, The Manual of Woody Landscape Plants, they, he and Keith Warren, a famous breeder for J. Frank Schmidt and Company, recently put out a book called Trees, which is... Excellent, because it gives you the features of the tree and how it relates to using it in a landscape design. Whereas his other book, The Manual of Woody Landscape Plants, literally tells you everything you need to know about that plant. But it's not really a landscape book. It has flowers. They're fragrant. It grows to be 50 feet tall. It grows to be 100 feet tall. It grows in zone seven, grows in zone six. It's, it's pretty matter-of-fact information without any pictures or any ID characteristics other than line drawings of the leaves. So uh, there's so much, so many books. I mean, right here, there's two bookcases stacked double, books in the back and books in the front. I love all the books on gardening and about plants and about the people that love plants. And Doug Tallamy and Rick Dark have done a great job on developing landscapes that are ecologically helpful to maintaining our insect populations, including trying to tie together all of these yards, yours and mine, for the monarchs so that they can trans-travel 
their area without having these big expanses of open open land that don't have any source of nectar or food for them to make these big trans transits. Same with birds. And so if we can we can add enhance our own personal environment with plants. Number one, CO2. Number two, our own personal pleasure. And number three, we're creating a better environment for everyone by contributing plants that will support animals and natural life. It's awesome. It's awesome. I get excited about that part of it. Yes. Because I'm stripping out some exotics out of my landscape and really replacing them with ferns and mosses and other plants that we haven't even had the opportunity to talk about. So Yes. Well, you know what that means, Dr. Dunwell. We'll have to have you back on for another episode to discuss more about that. So I just want to say thank you again for being on the podcast and thank you for all these helpful tips in creating winter interest in the garden. So thank you. You're very welcome. I enjoyed talking with you. I hope that you enjoyed our discussion today over creating winter interest in the garden. To view the show notes for episode 14, make sure to visit me on the blog at Warren County Agriculture at warrencountyagriculture.com. And a big thank you to Dr. Wynn Denwell for being our guest on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. Gardeners, keep digging into gardening and remember to add a little sunshine. Thanks for listening to the Sunshine Gardening Podcast with Kristen Hildebrand. If you enjoyed today's content, make sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to catch future segments of the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. Gardeners, keep on digging and learning more about gardening so the sun shines brighter over your Kentucky garden. The Sunshine Gardening Podcasts with Kristen Hildebrand is a production of the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. 